Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment, this we will do if God permit. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again to repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now let's look at the end of chapter 5. And let's look at verse 12 there. It says, when, you, when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God and are become as such as have need of milk and not strong meat. So we want to teach tonight, we want to work on the question, can a believer fall away from grace? Or the idea, can a person who is a Christian lose or renounce or walk away from their true relationship with God, fall from grace, whatever one, a kind of phrase someone wants to use. And we're going to try to look at this with some detail. So there'll be a number of scriptures I can tell you now that we're going to look at. We'll probably go to Matthew 10, Matthew 12, Luke chapter 6, possibly John chapter 6 also. But let's have a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful for the the scheme of redemption that you prepared from the foundation of the world. And we are so happy that you brought the knowledge of your son to each one of us. According to Ephesians chapter 1, we've been sealed with the spirit. We thank you, Lord, that your spirit is in our heart, leading us to cry out, Abba, Father. We know there's a relationship. We know you're the father. We know that um, we're the children. So we pray that you would lead and guide us in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Now, there are a lot of topics that a person can discuss in Bible study that people will think are controversial. I think if you uh, touch on the subject of healing, that can be controversial in some quarters. I think if somebody talks about Acts chapter 2, speaking in tongues, that can become controversial. Even ideas about the end times, the coming of the Lord. What all that mean? That produces a lot of controversy for people. But this here, this, this subject of our salvation, about what people call the perseverance of the saints, what some call once saved, always saved. I have had heated discussions with people about these issues, and very often they don't always end in a nice way, you know. So you, you have to try to approach this with some tact, and some love for God in, in, in such a way that you still love people that you disagree with sometimes. That's, that, that's the key. Now, the reason this issue comes up in Hebrews is because he is talking to these people about the children of Israel. He has spoken to them in the last chapter about Melchizedek, and he concluded that chapter speaking to them about the first principles of the Christian faith. And then he says in chapter 6, verse 1, we have to leave those principles and not lay again the foundation of repentance. Then he gives us what are basically the first principles. These are rudimentary things or the kinds of things that children in faith should know. 
That is repentance from dead works, faith in God, doctrine of baptisms, laying on of hands. Well, if you look at the last two verses of chapter 5, it talks about milk and meat. Milk is given to a baby or an infant, a toddler. But meat is given to someone who's stronger, whose senses are able to be used for proper discernment. And then he goes on to tell us in chapter 6 that we should go on to perfection or maturity in verse 1. And then he says in verse 3, and this we will do if God permit. So there's some marked progress that every Christian ought to make in their spiritual journey. That is to say that we should grow in grace and in knowledge. We should not remain on the same spiritual level 10 years later where we were 10 years previously. It should be growth. It's the same thing with an infant. Uh, if, a, if an infant comes into this world, an infant is not born to be an infant. An infant is born to be an adult and to reproduce and to recreate himself, his own image in, 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 other, in other seed. And this is the same as a Christian. Well, notice some of these things in verse 1. Repentance from dead works. Once a person becomes a Christian, they have turned their back on the things of this world that could not save. So you don't ever want to believe that your efforts, your best efforts, or even your worst efforts could lead to any kind of salvation at all. Our repentance means that we turn from anything that led us or had us believing at some point or another that we're saved on the basis of that. So Hinduism, Buddhism, other religions that teach salvation by different means, the, the Greek and Roman religions of Paul's day, there has to be a repentance from those dead activities. They don't produce anything. So this is what baby Christians are supposed to learn. And of faith toward God. The believer should exhibit faith in God, faith in, in the Lord, growing in grace and continuing to trust in God and in no one else. That's what the Ten Commandments are all about. It says you're to have no other gods, then you're not to have any images, and you're not to bow down before them. And those Ten Commandments, the Lord said, hinge upon two specific things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, then love your neighbor as yourself. So if you do those two things, according to Jesus, you keep the entirety of the moral law. So baby Christians should learn these things also. Then the doctrine of baptisms. Well, this word baptism can mean different kinds of washings, ritual washings that the Jewish people were involved with. There certainly are different baptisms mentioned in the New Testament. Acts chapter 2 was called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We know there's baptism in water. 1 Corinthians 12 speaks of when you become a Christian, you are baptized into the body of Christ. So I've just given you three different kinds of baptisms that are mentioned in the New Testament. The laying on of hands. You lay hands on people in the book of Acts if they were receiving the Holy Spirit. You lay hands on people if you're going to bless them. You remember Jacob laid hands on his children and prophesied to them. So the laying on of hands is also used for praying for the sick. So a lot of different things people can use that for. Then the resurrection of the dead. Every believer coming into Christianity should learn that Jesus was raised from the dead. And also that we ourselves are one day going to be raised from the dead, that there will be an eternal judgment. That means accountability. If there is no judgment, there's no accountability. And if there's no accountability, we're not responsible for anything that we do. And that's one reason some people do not like the idea 
of God being a judge who one day is going to deal with our, our, our lifestyles or our sin. But, but you don't have to worry. If, if you're a believer and you're in Christ, then you have the safety and security of standing before the Lord in the righteousness of the Lord. That means that your sins have been dealt with in the blood of Jesus. So every night you put your head on the pillow, you trust Jesus and what he did for you on Calvary, you're safe. You're fine. The people who, are, who should be worried are people who deny what the scripture says about the Lord Jesus. But then Paul goes on to say here, he says, it's impossible for those who were once enlightened have tasted of the heavenly gift. And then it goes on to talk about them falling away. So here's the question. Can a believer who really is in, in love with the Lord, has a relationship with God, can they fall away? And uh, some people will say, well, if they fell away from God, they never truly were saved. I've met a lot of people in churches who I knew personally that were excited about God, had a genuine relationship with God, had some very full experiences with God, and I've seen them get offended at God and walk away from God. I've seen them walk away from the church, walk away from the Bible, and yet at some point you know that it was real, it was vibrant. They may have been the one that led you to Christ. And having led you to Christ, walked away from God. I've seen people do that. Well, in discussions with people, especially on this question, can a believer fall away? Uh, folks will say, well, look, the covenant is transmitted through uh, baptism. See, some people believe that. And if they believe it's transmitted in baptism, then, of course, then there's nothing you can do that can affect your salvation. So we need to we need to work on what it means to be saved. Then, if if I can take an infant and then I can put water on the infant and then the baptism of that infant is somehow signifying that the covenant of grace is now imparted to that infant. And that infant is now a covenant member in the community of God. And the infant is now saved as a child of God. <clears throat> what if the child grows up and never has cared about God or displays any kind of fruit of God's grace? I've seen that happen too. I've met people who were baptized as infants, but have never one time in their life ever cared about God. And some of them don't even believe in God. And I've read the obituaries when I knew that they died in deep sin and yet still on the obituary says and so and so was baptized on such and such day because the idea in, in the minds of the, the people who sometimes write the obituary and sometimes in the minds of the reader is that if if we get the water on the child the child is safe now and, and there's a lot of pressure from grandparents and great-grandparents on their uh, grandchildren hurry up and get that baby baptized because if that baby dies that baby will be lost Un understand this folks uh, children that come into this world are, are guilty of or I should say they, they're born with original sin just like all of us but they're not guilty of actual sin they haven't done anything wrong so any child that comes into this world cannot be judged for sins they don't even know anything about God wouldn't be just if, if he did that Okay, so let's go a little bit further then. When we ask the question, can someone walk with God and fall away? Notice the language of verse 4. It speaks of people who were enlightened, people that had tasted of the heavenly gift, 
people who have tasted of the good word and the powers of the world to come. Now, I've had friends say to me, now, you know, this is hypothetical. This has never happened because once you're in, you persevere because you're saved by what, by what God has done. And that's true. You're saved by what God has done. And they'll say, well, a baby is born, but a baby cannot be unborn. A baby is passive and has nothing to do with their, their birth. So it's the same way with the new birth. I say, not quite. Not quite. I said in the, in the New Testament, when many of these people heard the gospel and they believed, they believed based upon what they heard. They were of a stage in life where they could actually listen to what was being stated and determine on the basis of what they heard whether or not they wanted to believe. So you have a free will. We say that people are free moral agents. Now, back in the Reformation era, predestination was strong. You've probably heard of predestination. Predestination is the belief that a few people, maybe we won't say, we won't say a few, a certain select number of people in the history of humanity were chosen by God to be saved to go to heaven. Then the other group was designated by God to be condemned. So if you believe that some are saved to go to heaven, then the others are passed over in their sins, that's still reprobation. It's a belief in predestination. But you believe other people are not going to make it to heaven. But there's a man by the name of Augustine who taught double reprobation, which is the idea that God did choose some to go to heaven and then God chose some to go to hell. And there's nothing this group over here can do to lose their salvation. There's nothing this group over here can do to gain their salvation. So the ones over here, if they decide they don't want to serve God and walk away from God because of the fact God made a covenant from the foundation of the world, they're in. But the ones over here who say, I'm doing everything I can to try to get in. I'm going to church. I'm striving to read the Bible, get close to God. But because I've been predestined to be lost, there's nothing I can do about it. And that's just the way it is. So when you look into the scripture, you won't find those particular schemes, I don't think. But I know there are a whole lot of people that hold to them because of the, the traditions and teachings that come out of the church. So I pulled out my Bibles. I've got a bunch of different Bibles. I pulled out one of my uh, 1599 Geneva Bibles, Reformation Bible. Just wanted to see what it said about some of these texts. And in Hebrews 5, it talks about the first principles of the oracles of God, and the notes for it talk about catechism. Now, folks, I want you to understand, I, catechism in the Reformed Church is something that I think probably is useful for people and anybody who learns the, the questions, what's the chief end of man to glorify God and all of that. I, I, I think that can be a wonderful, edifying thing, but, but you do need to know Paul didn't have that catechism. That's 1,500 years after Paul. So when it's talking about first principles here, it's not talking about that or the book of Concord or anything of that kind. So I pulled out my Catholic Bible and, and I looked at the Dewey Rames Bible from the 17th century to see what it had to say on, on chapter 6, verse number 6. And where it says, if they shall fall away to renew them again to repentance, the Catholic Bible that I have, it says to renew them again unto penance. Penance. See, so, so their idea was uh, repentance is not a change of mind. Penance is something that has to be done. It's an activity. It's a work that you have to do to please God, to show God 
that you really have turned from your sins. But returning to my question, though, can a believer turn and walk away from God? Let's go to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. And so the plot thickens. Revelation chapter 3. I'm going to start reading. The first verse talks about the church at Sardis. I'm going to start reading with church uh, with verse 2. I want you to pay special attention to the wording of verse number 5. But I'm going to start with 2. Revelation 3 verse 2. Be watchful. Strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. You have a few names in Sardis which have not defiled their garments and they shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment and I will not, what's that, what's that next word? Blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So verse five says that their names are in the book of life. So we know there's a book of life, a book that records the names of people that love the Lord. According to this, then the possibility of its erasure. That it can be removed. The possibility of that is real because Jesus wouldn't say anything to play with anybody's emotions. This is the last book of the New Testament. This is some possibly 30 years, 40 years or better after the crucifixion of the Lord. He has brought this man, John, in a vision to see these things. So Jesus wouldn't bring it up if it wasn't possible. That's what I want you to see. If it wasn't possible. Why say it? And it's the same thing in Hebrews 6. Why say to someone about something that cannot ever happen? I mean, then it's not a warning. It's only a warning if the possibility of it really does exist. So I need to give you an example. Let's go to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. This ought to be interesting. And I will get you involved with this when I ask you about some of these words. And we're going to go very slow tonight so we can all see this. We want to make sure we all get to these books and to these verses. Luke chapter 6, look at verse number 12. It came to pass in those days that he, Jesus, went into a mountain to pray, and he continued all night in prayer to God. All night he prayed. All night. So you have the names there. Verse 13. When it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve. So this is what happened. He prayed all night. The next morning, he gathered all of his disciples. Hundreds of people probably stayed all night with him out there. Of those hundreds of people, after he had prayed, he selected 12. And of those 12, we know from verse 17, he presented them. He presented them to the people and he came down with them. The names of the people mentioned in 13 through 16. And stood in the plain and the company of his disciples. So we have 12 disciples who are appointed apostles chosen by God to have a ministry in which they're going to pray for the sick, cast out devils, and raise the dead. Now let's go to Matthew chapter 10. First book of the New Testament. 
Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Let's look at verse number 1. When he had called unto him his twelve disciples, notice what he gave them, power against unclean spirits, to cast them out, to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. So notice verse 1 says they have power to deal with devils, unclean spirits, and power to heal. Then he gives the names. And notice all the names again from, from 2 through 4. You have all of these names, including, including Judas Iscariot. He's one of the 12. They've received power to cast out devils and heal the sick. Because as of right now, he has not betrayed the Lord. So he's one of the 12. Okay, go to chapter 12 of Matthew now. Matthew chapter 12. He sends his disciples out. They go two by two, different villages. They're healing the sick, casting out devils. In Matthew 12, notice in verse 22, they bring to Jesus someone possessed with a devil, blind and dumb, and he heals them. Insomuch that the blind, dumb, and deaf spake and saw. The people were amazed. They said, is not this the son of David? The Pharisees said, he casts out devils by Beelzebub. Beelzebub was an ancient a deity, the, the Lord of the flies. That's what they called him. And Jesus knew their thoughts in verse 25. Listen what he says. Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? Jesus is trying to get over a simple point. The devil cannot cast out the devil. That's what he's trying to say. And, and I bring this up because the 12 apostles, one of the names of the 12 is Judas. He's one of the 12. He was sent out to preach. He had power to cast out devils. He had power to heal the sick, power to cleanse the lepers. Jesus would not have given him that power if he was not right with God. Because I've heard many people, and I've read it in commentaries over and over again, Judas was never right with God. He was always a sinner. And then they'll quote the verse in John chapter 6 that says, Have I not chosen 12 of you, and one of you is a devil? But, but here's the key. Chosen is something that took place in the past. Is is the condition of the present. Judas did not begin as somebody full of the devil. And I can show you that by taking you to Luke 22 now. Let's go to Luke 22. So... So Judas had power to cast out devils, to heal the sick, but something happened. And I know what happened. Remember the story in John where it says Judas was the treasurer and they, 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 they had somebody that came and broke this precious perfume bottle, had the anointing oil in it, and, and Judas got mad and said, why in the world did you waste all of this? Well, see, something started happening in Judas's heart. He's healing the sick. He's preaching the kingdom of God. He's closely walking with the Lord. But I think what happened with him has happened to so many other people. Pretty soon, Christianity becomes something with which you're familiar. And you start taking Jesus for granted. The whole thing becomes old hat. 
and where you used to get excited about reading the Bible or Bible study or Christian music or fellowshipping with one another, then suddenly it becomes something like, well, I've got to do this again. And I think that's what started happening with Judah. He saw so many cripples walk. He saw so many blind eyes open. The marvel of the marvelous wore off. It was no longer wondrous to him. And remember, a miracle is only miraculous to us so long as it's something we don't see all the time. But if you live in a state where you're seeing the supernatural take place, if every night of your life you're doing like Billy Graham and you're standing up preaching to 100,000 people, do you realize year after year, night after night doing that, pretty soon it becomes old hat? Because it's just like standing up in front of any other group. And this is why even some of the people he's preached with through the years backslid and walked away from God. Yeah. Okay, well, let's look at this a little bit more. Luke chapter 22, look at verse number 2. The chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then entered Satan into Judas, whose last name was Iscariot, being a number of the twelve, and he went his way and communed with the chief priests. So verse 3, the, the devil entered Judas, is what the scripture says. Something had to have happened. This man had power to cast out devils. This man had power over unclean spirits. But now, according to the scripture, Satan has found an entryway into his life. So there's something that has happened is what I'm trying to get over. Because Jesus said the kingdom can't be divided against itself. Satan can't cast out Satan. Now Satan has gained passageway into Judah's life. How did it happen? He didn't guard his heart. Scripture says, guard your heart, for out of it comes the issues of life. The most important things in your life begin right here. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. As a woman thinketh in her heart, so is she. The moment you start having thoughts about doubting God, about leaving God, about walking away from God, it's at that moment you have to start filling your mind with the word of God and begin to worship the Lord and push those things out because if you're not careful, the adversary will encroach upon the territory of God and pretty soon he'll have you. Yeah, he'll have you. It's like a sheep being overtaken by a pack of wolves. At one time the sheep was with the flock safely, but pretty soon the wolves started running the flock, isolated the sheep, found one that was weak, got him off alone, and they devoured him. That's exactly what happened to Judas here. But he was right with God. I know this because even on another occasion, Jesus gave power to 70 other believers. And they went out and healed the sick, cast out devils, and they came back. They were rejoicing. They were so happy. They said, oh, you should have seen the demons we were casting out. And the Lord said, don't rejoice because you have power over devils, but rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Written in heaven. Now that goes back to what Jesus said. If you overcome, I will not blot out your name in the book of life. Judas started good, but he didn't end well. Turn to the book of Acts. Let's see how he ended. The book of Acts, chapter 1. Here's a man that betrayed the Lord for a few pieces of silver. And in Acts chapter 1, the scripture says they've got to replace Judas in the apostleship. So in verse 15, Peter stands up. In verse 16, he says, men and brethren, 
The scripture must have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. For he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. He was a part of them. See, this, this, He was a part of them. He was such a part of them that when Jesus said to Judas on the night he was betrayed, Jesus said, what you do, go and do quickly. They had no idea that Judas was even about to betray the Lord. They thought Jesus was sending him to the market to buy something. And that's what the Gospel of John said. They honestly believed. Judas had him so fooled, they honestly believed that his problem was he was supposed to go to the market. But the Lord knew something had happened in his heart. See, even Christians change. The book of Acts chapter 5 tells about Peter talking to Ananias and Sapphire. They were part of the church. And they were supposed to be helping the poor. And they told Peter they would sell some real estate and bring the money to Peter to help provide for the poor. And you know what they did? They kept back part of the money. And then they lied to Peter. And Peter said, you haven't lied to me. You've lied to the Holy Ghost. And they both fell over dead. Now, here were people that were in the church every single week praying. But yet, somehow or another, their heart wasn't wasn't right. So let's continue. Acts chapter 1, verse 18. This man, Judas, purchased a field with the reward of his iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. So this is talking about his suicides. In another location, talks about him dying also. This man was so grief-stricken by the fact that he had betrayed the Lord, he went out and took his own life. That's what Judas did. So this is why we tell you, keep your, keep your eyes open when, when it looks like you see the signs of possible suicide in somebody's life. Keep your eyes open. Pay attention to that in order to be there, to be a crutch for somebody, to be an encouragement for somebody. Because just like Judas was overcome with grief and went out and took his life, uh, many people who take their lives do so because of grief, excessive grief, excessive sorrow, which is why the Bible says a merry heart does good like medicine, and we like to keep people laughing. Yeah, we like to keep people laughing. We keep people laughing, we keep people happy. The scripture says a merry heart, he that has a merry heart has a continual feast. Most people are happy when they're eating. You know that? I'm serious. You think about it. You get family together and you put a bunch of food on the table. And if you got family that like each other and you're eating a whole lot of food, you have nothing but laughter and merriment and frivolity and everything else you can think of. And the scripture is very plain. The one that has a merry heart has a continual feast. I mean, they're feeding other people and they themselves are being fed by their happiness and by their joy. That's a contagious thing. Let's go back to. Uh, well, let's go over to Galatians 5 now. Let me show you something, something else. Then we'll go back to Hebrews 6. Galatians 5. Okay, so we, we give you the illustration of Judas to show you that it's a possibility, but also to demonstrate that it is a rarity. That there are not a lot of people in the New Testament who turn and walk away from God to the point that their salvation is severed. Jesus said in John 17, of the ones that you gave me, I've lost none but one, the son of perdition. Judas, he's in a place that's not so nice. That's, that's what the scripture 
is very plain about. And the scripture says about Paul that he had a fellow worker by the name of Demas. And the scripture says, Demas hath forsaken me for this present world. He loved the world so much and all of its trappings. I hope and pray that before he died, uh, he got right with God. But at some point, he walked away from Paul and the ministry. Look at Galatians 5, verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. Don't be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. What is the yoke of bondage? The Old Testament legal system. We're going to see that here in a minute. Verse 2. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. But I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to the whole law. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. Now let me explain this. In the Old Testament, God told Abraham, I'm making a covenant with you, establishing a covenant with you. You're going to be special. Your descendants are going to be special to me. And the sign of our relationship would be that every male child born into this world on the eighth day, you're to circumcise the foreskin of their flesh, and that will be a physical sign to every male. So in the Old Testament, that's why Jewish people were circumcised, and even to this day, that's why they're circumcised. However, when Jesus came, the Bible says he died on the cross for us. Having died on the cross, he took the Old Testament precepts, the, the ritual, the liturgy, the food laws and stuff like that. He nailed them to the cross, setting them aside so that they are no longer binding on his believers, people that trust him. So that means they were annulled. They're no longer in force. I, I can eat pork. I can eat shrimp. I can eat lobster. Yeah. You can, um, uh, women can come into the church and go into the inner, inner sanctums of the the, the, uh, the most holy places in any kind of worship establishment. Rather, in the Old Testament, women could only go so far. In fact, in the Old Testament, only, went, only men could serve as priests. But now the scripture says, we've all been made priests unto the Lord, men and women. Well, circumcision continued to serve as a sign of the relationship with God to the point that many people in Jesus' day believed that if they were born Jewish, and they get their ethnicity through the mother, not through the father, but they were born Jewish and they're circumcised, it doesn't matter what I do or how I live, I'm saved because I've got it in my flesh and I'm part of the group. And Jesus is the one who came along and said, that's, that's not true. And Romans 2 says, circumcision in the flesh doesn't matter, it's circumcision in the heart. So the Christian who believes in God is circumcised in his heart. All of us in here right now are circumcised. It's spiritual. It's in here. So we don't have to physically be circumcised in the flesh. And we don't have to feel bad if we've never been circumcised as infants when we were, you know, with male children. But it is also very plain that this circumcision that we have produces the real salvation. And there are people who honestly believe if they are physically circumcised, they're right with God. And this is why Paul says in Galatians here in chapter 5, verse number 3, the one that is circumcised is now a debtor to the whole law. They have to honor every stipulation in the old covenant if they're going to trust in circumcision as the means of their salvation. So verse 4 says, Christ has become of no effect of you. 
And it says you're falling from grace. So people who trust in a physical, a physical deformation of their body in order to believe that they are in right standing with God, they've fallen from grace and don't even know they've fallen from grace. See, that's what, that's what Paul is saying here. Christ has become of no effect. Well, you say, well, hold on, wait a minute. Jesus was Jewish. He was. And the Bible says he kept every jot and tittle of the law. He didn't break any commandment. But remember, the Bible says he climbed up on the cross. He spoiled the powers and principalities. And now we that are in Christ, you know, spiritually in him, we live because of him. He lives through us. We don't have to keep the law because we're saved not by what we do in keeping commandments. We're saved because of our position in Christ. So we rest comfortably knowing my salvation is simply based upon me believing in him. That's not something that's arduous or difficult. Just simply believe. I believe he saved me from my sins. I'm saved. We'll go to Ephesians 2 now. This, this, this gets bigger and bigger. Ephesians 2. Your salvation is directly linked and connected to what you believe. Ephesians 2, look at verse number 4. But God, who is rich in mercy and his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved. He's raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through what? Faith. See, that's the means right there. Through faith. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God. Okay, if by grace I'm saved through faith, and that's not of myself, it's of the gift of God, what happens if I lose my faith? See, you, you cut off the means. The, the means by which salvation works and grace functions in your life. If, if I lose my faith in God and do like Judas, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. So the only thing I need to do is just walk with God. Not a, not a struggle. It's not to say the devil isn't going to come to you and try to produce anxieties and trials and tests and tribulations and doubts in your heart and your life. But if you believe he was born of a virgin, lived in this world without sin, died on the cross for your sins, suffering the penalty for you, enduring the shame, the guilt that should have come to you and to me, and that he was literally buried, genuinely raised from the dead, and received up to the right hand of the Father, where he's one day going to judge all of mankind. If you believe those basic, simple truths, you don't have anything to worry about. The people who are in trouble are people who doubt that Jesus is God, or that he was raised from the dead, or that he was the Lamb of God slain for the salvation for the sins of this world. Now let's go back to Hebrews 6 uh, real fast and, and, and we'll work on this some more. <clears throat> so Judas then fell away and in verse 6 it said that they shall fall away to renew them again to repentance seeing they crucified themselves the son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. If you've ever noticed if someone backslides and from a backslidden condition returns to God, 
their return usually is not as glorious as the first time they met the Lord. Yeah. But I mean, it's still a coming home. So somebody gives their heart to the Lord. The Lord lifts every burden. And sometimes they're weeping and crying. They're like, oh, I'm so happy. This is wonderful. And they serve the Lord for years. But then maybe they go through bad marital circumstances. And maybe they, they lose everything but the shirt on their back. And they get mad at God. And they just wander for a long time. Just decide they don't want to have anything to do with the church. And they're just meandering and everything. Not that they lost their faith. They're just meandering. Don't want to have anything to do with the Lord or Christians or anything. And then, then sometimes they come back. And when they come back, they don't have the exact same joyful experience that they had the first time. Even though there's a reconnection. See, the, the scripture tells us in verse 7 and then verse 8. It gives us an agricultural example. He says, the earth which drinks in the rain that very often comes to it. He says, it brings forth herbs that are useful for those who farm it and receive the blessing of God. And then it says, but that which bears thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing whose end is to be burned. So it's in the, 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 the thorns and the, the briars since they're of no value, they face the fire or destruction. Now, it's the same earth. It's the same rain. But the rain's not falling on all locations. And when it's not falling on all locations, it's not producing the same thing in all places. So he's given the illustration. You as a Christian have to make sure that you cultivate your Christian life. So that the Lord can continually bring forth an outpouring of his grace and his blessings into your life so that your life will produce fruitfulness. That's what he's saying. Because he says that that doesn't produce. The end of it is to be burned. Well, anybody that's a Christian and really loves God wants to be fruitful in their relationship with God. I've never really met a genuine Christian that doesn't want to be a good Christian. I've met people who go to church because that's what you're supposed to do. I've met people who are religious because it just seems like, you know, being a religious is a good thing to do. I go to church, pass out my business card, meet a few people, some contacts, you know, things like that. I've met a lot of people who are like that. But a, a genuine Christian is the kind of person who's looking into the word of God and, and they're thinking, how can these verses Make me better. Mm -hmm. We want to be better. How can I be a better man? How can I be a better father? How can I be a better woman, a better mother? How can I be a better Christian? And this is why he's able to say in verse 9, But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. He's saying we are believing that for you, we don't have to worry about anybody falling away. We don't have to worry about anybody producing thorns and briars and thistles. We're persuaded that your salvation is going to be accompanied with fruit. and You're going to serve God and love God. And that's how we should be. We should be encouraged about every person that we know that genuinely wants to serve God. And he goes on to say in verse 10, God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you have showed toward his name and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Because many people believe God has forgotten about them. They honestly think the Lord's not even interested in them. God, do you care what I'm going through down here? 
So he speaks of the full assurance in verse 11 of hope unto the end. The certainty, the intestinal trust and confidence to know that at the end I will be saved. Yeah. Now this I have helped many people with who were on their deathbed. People that were dying and just did not believe that they were ready to go meet the king. And it's amazing when these, these things happen. I received a phone call one time from a gentleman who was very elderly. And, and I couldn't understand why the gentleman called me because he had never called me in his life. I didn't even know he even really knew who I was. Certainly didn't think he knew my number. But I pick up the phone. No, I think there was a message on the machine. So I make the, the call. We get on the phone. We're talking. And I'm just trying to figure out what this conversation is going to be about. We're talking and doing all small talk and how are you and so and so. Then finally, comes around and says, you know, Pastor Darrell, I, I, I don't, know, don't know that I'm a Christian, that I'm ready to meet God. Yeah. So now I've got 30 minutes or so or more to just explain the way of salvation. That's a beautiful thing, folks. It's a terrible thing to come to the end of your days and have no hope, have no idea where in the world you're going to go when you, when you pass away. We had a gentleman one time and friend, and uh, I, I got a phone call when we had the apartment up there. I said, could you come visit so-and-so? So I went over to this hospital. There's a gentleman laying there in the uh, hospital bed from a, a prominent family there in that town. And he's alcoholism is destroyed, his body, kidneys shutting down, liver and everything just, just not working the way it's supposed to. His eyes are yellow. And, and so I asked him, I said, well, why'd you call for me? I, mean, I didn't even think you knew who I was. You know, so I'm standing here, and he, he begins to confess to me. He's just talking to me about his life, how he was raised in town, raised in a particular church there in that town, come up in the youth group, but got away from church and just never served God, never was interested in God, and got involved with liquor and the grief that came to him from the bottle, and, and here he is now in, in the bed. And, and he's telling me this, and I said, well, you know, it doesn't have to end this way. This is not the way it has to end. You, you, can, you can accept the Lord. Do you want me to pray with you? So I spent three to five minutes sharing the plan of salvation with him. And he prayed with me in them tears, just rolling down his face. <clears throat> he came right on into the kingdom through repentance. And I, I watched him. As he lay there and just kind of closed his eyes and went to sleep, he's just peaceful. Now, you know, you can rest well when you think everything is okay here. A couple hours later, I got a phone call said he passed away. Passed away. He, he finally had hope in the end. Now, see, I can tell you a bunch of stories just like that of people. That just in the, the final moments, here I'm standing right there at the bedside. I've got to talk to somebody and explain the, the way of salvation. These things are so important. And then it says in verse 12, don't be lazy or slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And this is where I'll stop. Uh, make sure you have examples that are good examples of what it means to walk with God. If you have bad examples, you're going to pick up bad habits. There's no doubt about that. You follow bad Christians, you're going to be a Christian that's doing things that aren't necessarily good or advantageous. Paul said all things are lawful, but all things are not expedient. That is to say, beneficial to my Christian life. Part of, a part of laziness 
is not being diligent enough to keep your eyes open to pay attention to how people live. The scripture says, follow me as I follow Christ. Every one of us, every day, we're an example to somebody, whether you think about it or not. You are an example to somebody. Somebody's paying attention to you. I'm paying attention to you. You're an example to me. And, and, and you're paying attention to me, so I'm an example to you. My wife and I, one time, we met some folks, and once they realized I was a pastor, they, they, they quickly turned on the, 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 uh, the Christian charm, you know, and explained to me what denomination church they go to and all of this, and, you know, just really put on the airs about how much they love the Lord. Well, the more we just paid attention to, to, to the lifestyle, we, okay, we're, they don't love God like they say they love God. You know, I, I, sometimes I'd be around out here on that telephone, folks cussing folks out. Be parties, everybody's getting drunk. Uh, not even married. See, all that, all that stuff came out. Then I realized it, it wasn't what we, what we thought. So when we take examples from Scripture of what it means to be Christian, we have to know that we inherit the promises through patience. Your faith has to be worked out every day of your life. Perfection does not come overnight. We do not learn what we know overnight. I know far more about God today than I did the day I met the Lord. And I believe it's the same with you. And I'm hoping that by the time I reached the 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 golden years of my 60s or something like that, I'll know more about the Lord then than I know right now. And if the Lord tarries, and, and um, Tiffany and I and the, the Nefs, we, we grow old and we make it to 90, and the Lord hadn't come back, I'd like to think that as Darren and I are sitting around talking about the Lord, listening to the ladies talk about recipe books and crafts, that, that, that he and I will be far further ahead than we are right now. So folks' relationships with, with God are so important. But hold on to everything that you know. Hold fast to it. Don't let the devil cause you to become discouraged. If it ever looks like you're getting discouraged, and I pick up that you are becoming discouraged, then that's when we have to start coming around to make you laugh, and we have to start harassing you, and we have to start trying to figure out what happened to you, why you don't come around anymore. And even though some people don't like to be bothered, you bother and pester them anyhow. Because true love is to say, I love you too much to leave you there in that mud hole. Yeah, yeah. We have to try to get you out of there. And if you ever saw that happening to me, look, do what you can to encourage me. That's the perfect time. The pastor looks like he's going through a difficult time. What, what can we do to encourage him? I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll throw a big party for him, and then we'll all just, we'll all just pin $100 bills on him. See? And we'll make him all the pecan pies that he wants, and then we'll all give him life-size pictures of us. Well, see that? That'll that, have somebody happy. Okay, come on, let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you. We're so grateful, Lord, we can have a sense of humor, but at the same time look into these things that are so important because they are serious. And God, we pray that we stay strong in our faith and in our relationships with you. God, help us to keep our feet from sliding, as the Old Testament does speak of. Help us to keep ourselves on firm footing. This we pray for in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen.